end, a story like the Bible needs not just simply a kind of a conclusion like, and the disciples lived happily ever after, because we know after that that they would die, and we can't help but ask, but what's after that? There has to be something beyond just simply a life, even a life in the presence of God, even a life in relationship to God. There has to be something more that goes beyond. Now, I'm not going to apologise for this. Uh, who's read Lord of the Rings? Who doesn't like Lord of the Rings? No? I'll you after the okay. <laughs> receiving prayer. I'm not going to recount the whole story of Lord of the Rings. That's longer than the readings. The story of Lord of the Rings basically is an epic struggle. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien was a Christian who read the book. And uh, it ends in a great struggle with evil. But actually not between two mighty armies and the, the strong good army becomes a strong uh, bad army, but rather through the weakness of two people called hobbits, tiny people destroying the ring of power, basically a kind of a, a metaphor you might say if you think about it for sin and its um, corruptive influence, power and its corruptive influence. There's a destruction of the ring of power, the dark lord is defeated, a new king is uh, established and everything is great. Sort of. Um, there's still damage from, from the war and the life lived under the Dark Lord, etc. It's not completely resolved. There is a kind of heavenly aspect to it at the end too, as the hobbits and their reward go off to the undying lands of, uh, of blessedness. Now following that book, Tolkien spent a lot of time um, creating this world and created a lot of other stories around it, but he wanted to write a sequel. And he gave up. He gave up the sequel because the sequel follows along the lines of this. Another dark power arises in the world mm -hmm. and the people have to rise to meet it. There's a kind of falling away from all the good things that uh, were achieved in the last story. And in essence, it's kind of the same story over again. And he got depressed and he said, but it does point out, in a sense, where did that story end up going? Was there actually final hope, final resolution in that story? And no. Okay. Just take the um, level of quality down a little bit here. So Star Wars. Who's seen Star Wars? <laughs> Who's afraid to admit it? <laughs> yeah, that's there's not many hands. I believe that you've all seen Star Wars. Same story there, big resolution at the end, a big fight, um, good overcome the evil, and um, the emperor is defeated. Let's we'll have a big party, move on. Now, nothing can stand between Hollywood and the big pile of cash, so a further story is told. And if any of you saw the, um, the sequel series, you'll know that isn't this the same story happening again, but just with few different faces. Same thing happens again. The Good Republic, the winners become corrupted, on again, another fight. Okay, why are we saying all that? Is that in essence, there is what we would call the myth of redemptive violence. But actually what uh, struggle against evil requires is just that you have greater force on the side of good to overcome the force on the side of evil 
I'll have a fight and win. But it actually doesn't change the nature of things. It's not even seen in the world today. We think there were two world wars fought in Europe. Um, you might say, oh, there's a great era of peace, but you actually had a cold war. You know, had a hot war in Eastern Europe as well. The myth of redemptive violence, we just keep fighting and killing bad people, supposedly, then uh, we can win. The book of Revelation tells a very different story. The New Testament tells us a very different story. It tells us a story that there is an age to come in which righteousness will dwell. There is a new heavens and earth in which peace and righteousness will dwell. And it won't come about through a mighty military empire. It comes about through a crucified Messiah. It comes about through one who said, why can't you just fight all the, the Romans who are about to take you and crucify you? And Jesus says, don't you think that I could actually that call on 10, I can't remember the actual number, but legions of angels to come and rescue me right now. It's just the same thing, the same myth of redemptive violence happening there. True resolution needs to go deeper. True resolution to the story takes us into a disturbing place in the present age, which we'll talk about next week. But if we still talk about that, we need to think about what is the hope to come. So we talked about insufficient stories, as that picture in was. Ugh, every time I see it. The Bible story is not Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis 3, whoosh, jump to the end of the Gospels, everything is great at the end. It's a bigger story than that. As I've said before, we've gone through the four acts there of creation, the fall of disruption, beginning of God's redemptive and rectifying purpose in the world through Israel. And then last week we looked at how even in setting things in the right direction through the people of Israel, in the end, it's a project which is kind of doomed to failure. There is goodness, there is flourishing, there is wisdom and so forth available to the people of God. There is a covenant in which they can choose life, they can choose blessing, but instead it's corrupted. The covenant basically leads not to blessing but to cursing. And um, redemption is required. Because deep in the heart of who we are, deep in the heart of who Israel is, is the problem of sin as a power, as a form of something <laughs> which corrupts what, um, what God intends for the world. And so God must overcome it in order to get what he wants. In order for him to fulfill his promises, he needs to redeem us. And it is, of course, as we saw last week, in a surprising way. We could go straight to Act 5, but we're going to do that next week because, as we said in the first week, we need to imagine ourselves as living between what has gone before, leading up to the Messiah, the achievement of Jesus, and then what God has promised for us next, a new heavens and a new earth. So we live between those times, and it'll take a bit of time to think about how we live in that tension. Well, let's just jump straight to Act 6 so that next week we can go back and talk about ourselves, our favourite subject. <laughs> okay. So before we talk about the end, the book of Revelation in particular and a few other New Testament verses, I just want to, again, remember what's the Old Testament driving towards? 
Okay? If the people of God struggle with their faithfulness to God, if they struggle um, to fulfil what God requires as God's covenant partner to bring about this new uh, world, a restoration of a world that has fallen into sin, what does God need to do to enable it to happen? So in the midst of uh, exile, in the midst of Israel's failure, we have the prophets who spoke to Israel saying, repent, turn, turn around. They did not. Um, and instead, the prophets then have to say, well, look, you are going to exile. You will have to bear the consequences of your failure to keep the covenant. You have to bear the consequences of sin. And remember, I'm a God who keeps his promises. The fate of Israel and the fate of the world does not rely upon Israel's performance, ultimately. God himself will step in. And what will he do? Well, Jeremiah 31, let me read it out again. <laughs> just like it seems twitches just then. <laughs> There's a number of things here, we're just going to scoot through it. This is for you to go back, read it, think about it, highlight, underline, whatever. But the blessings of that new covenant, what is the genuine newness that God is promising to his people? I've got their first forgiveness. So we think we know what forgiveness means often. We sort of just think, well, that's, um, I did a bad thing. I said, sorry. God forgave it. Move on. But there's something bigger in this case. This is like, in Israel, it's like the piling upon piling upon piling of sin. It's not just about the one person being forgiven. It's about what is all the things that we do, the way that we live in opposition to what God intends for us. How do they just pile up? and distort and defile the worlds in which we live. <coughs> distort and defile our ability to live in proximity to God. And so one of the first things here was this idea that God will provide this amazing forgiveness, the forgiveness of sins. Not that he'll just forgive sins, he can do that at any time. When um, David committed his terrible acts, uh, Nathan comes to him and, and tells him to repent, and David does. And so uh, Nathan the prophet says, the Lord has put away your sin. Nonetheless, these consequences are going to come uh, upon you because of that. It's not that people can't be forgiven, but there is a piling up, you might say, of sins. And so God promises that he will not act in accordance with what we have done together, individually and collectively. He will not remember our sins and that he will not act on the basis of that. He will forgive our sins. He will not remember our sins. He will put them away from him. He will not act on that basis. Instead, he will act on his covenant love. So we have forgiveness. We all know about that. But forgiven for what purpose? If we just keep on sinning and being forgiven, and that's kind of the process forever and ever and ever, we haven't changed the story. It's good news that we are not locked into the consequences of our sin. It's good that we are not locked in such a way that we cannot approach God. It is great to have forgiveness, but why? Because God wants a people for himself. He wants a people that can bear his name. He wants a people that he can live in covenant relationship with. He wants a people that he can live among. And so the next thing is there from Jeremiah 31. 
is that there is a transformation of heart. Now, heart, of course, is a metaphor for our deep inner life, our inner being. Sometimes we say heart, sometimes we say spirit, etc. There needs to be transformation of who we are in in order that we are unable, that we are enabled, not unable, (laughs) enabled to live according to what God wants. Now, that's not just about following rules. It's about living the life that God has intended for human beings. It means genuine human flourishing. It means genuine living in peace toward one another. It means genuine love toward one another. It means genuinely living in just relationships with one another. All the things that the Torah requires and commands and asks us to explore and live out, there needs to be a transformation of the heart or the story doesn't change. It's be the same old story. Again, there is no resolution to this story. We just go back over generations and generations, like we see in the life of Israel, basically the sons of the fathers, etc., etc., committing the same sorts of sins, with some exceptions and some heroes, as we see through the Old Testament. But that's the big problem. How is it that the heart of a human being would be changed? And so God promises that he will, in fact, transform and change uh, the heart. And in uh, Ezekiel 38, or 37 and 38, he puts it this way, that he will actually put his law, his uh, wisdom, his guidance for life into the hearts of his people. That's not just going to be written on tablets of stone, it's going to be written right to the hearts of people. Who they are will reflect at the deepest possible level desire to live in the same way as God intends to live out of his character. And closely aligned with that is this promise of divine presence. That God will actually be close. He will actually be in the presence of his people. He will even indwell his people with his spirit. Some of you seem quite saying, ah, pretty blase, I've been a Christian a long time. Nah. Well, you know, part of the <laughs> part of the sense of whether we take these things seriously is whether we see this expressed in our lives. Do we actually live a life where we say, I'm being forgiven and I'm going to move into a life reflecting God's righteousness? Do we actually truly have a transformed heart that we can say, yes, I want what God wants in my life. I want what God wants here in this community. I want what God wants in the wider community out in the world. How has your heart been transformed to do that? And what does it mean to live in God's presence? You know, as we've looked at over a few different weeks, we've seen this thing that where Israel has got right in the middle of, of uh, their community, in the tent, and then later in the, the temple. And it's dangerous stuff to approach God because we need to remember God is holy. Purity of heart, a willingness to give and to sacrifice, and to give a life as a gift to God is fundamental to what we call our relationship with God. So much can get hidden underneath that phrase. It's true that you come to the idea of the relationship with God through. You're part of the covenant people. You are in a relationship of holiness. You are in a relationship where God has called you to live in particular ways, a vocation to live in the same way as Jesus. And there are other divine promises as well, including the idea that God will provide a king, a faithful king who will rule his people, I think. 
Yeah. Living near the end of the story, you look back and you go, ah, of course. Things like, oh, he's talking about Jesus. No, he's talking about a promised king. Jesus fulfills that thing of the promised king. We don't just go through the Old Testament going, Jesus, 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 Jesus. All I need to do is think about the Jesus I already think I understand. When we go back to the Old Testament, you come to understand more of what Jesus is about. You come to understand what was important to Jesus. We don't just look at Jesus as being a means to our own ends. Jesus did not come in order that we can be fulfilled in particular things that we enjoy. That's something which comes, you might say, as a side benefit. If you deny yourself, if you lose your life on his behalf, then he gives you back your life, more than what you could expect. But we're all called to follow the way of the king, that is Jesus. And also in this new covenant as well, there's no one with the need under this new covenant to continue to go to the tabernacle or the temple to present a gift to God, a sacrifice, offering oneself to God in a new way to attempt to repair the relationship. The big offering, once for all, has been made for us. As Hebrews puts it, Jesus has gone into the holiest of holies, the heavenly one, into the presence of God and shown his own life, his own blood, his faithfulness unto death, to the Father, and the Father has accepted that. And now he is our mediator. So again, you don't just have your own private, personal relationship with God, you have a mediator one that comes through Jesus. We pray in the name of Jesus. We don't just come in our own sort of capacity, based on our own faithfulness, because that should be a problem, would it not? Okay. So now we come thinking about what does it, what is a Christian hope? We saw that in um, Jeremiah in particular, you have this idea that there needs to be newness, not the same old stuff happening again, not just God forgiving, but actually taking his people somewhere new. And so we come to what we call, <coughs> I've mentioned it a few times and I'm just going to put it out there, the word eschatology. Eschatology comes from the, uh, that's the word eschaton, which is the last, last things. Now, I just want to make a comment before we go further with this. When we look at things like the book of Revelation, when we look at um, the New Testament and its um, hopes for the future, the Old Testament for its hopes for the future, we're talking about the last things where things will finally end up. What is the goal or tell us of the creation that comes through the redemption in Christ? It is not about a thing called the end times. Okay, now there is a, a, a very popular movement in church history. It's only about 200 years old, called dispensationalism. And so what that does is it presents us the idea that the book of Revelation and the rest of the prophets are like this jigsaw puzzle that we need to put together to find out, oh, what's going to happen in the last... 10, 20, 30 years. So we can get our newspapers out and we can go, ah, the uh, Antichrist or the Beast, whatever here, identifies this particular person in the newspaper. Um, it is instead a picture of the age leading up to the end, which is relevant to every segment of church history. It's not like, oh, we're the final generation that the book of Revelation talks about. The book of Revelation talked about the first century, it's about the first century church. 
we talked about what was to come through the present um, time as well. I'm not going to talk in depth about that, but I just want to raise that because this whole idea of um, that really we've got to sort of get, get our little charts out and try to sort of work out how the end works is not what the book of Revelation is about. Okay? And what it does, and this is also why it's a problem, is that what it does is that it distracts us actually from the mission and calling of what we have now. Wasting our time looking through the newspaper trying to work out what world event corresponds to this particular symbol, is, you know, is this particular grasshopper thing with this thing in the tail, whatever, or maybe it's a Black Hawk helicopter or whatever else. All this stuff that distracts us actually from understanding the meaning um, of the text and fulfilling our mission in the world. It's distraction, it's a, um, it's a bad deal, it's terrible biblical interpretation, and um, yeah, <laughs> stop it. Okay, so what is eschatology about then? What is the end? It's not about escaping this world, it is, as we've been seeing, the continuity through the biblical story is that God intends to redeem his people and his creation as well. He's not abandoning everything and taking us off somewhere else. That's not how heaven and earth work together. God's desires for heaven and earth to come together, as Ephesians puts it, as I said last week, in Christ, all things in heaven and earth would come together under one head. That would be united. Okay, so this quote. I believe the time is right for contemporary Christians to engage in serious reflection on the shape of our eschatology, that is, how we talk and think about the end, the last things. This eschatology must be grounded firmly in the entire biblical story. Aha, now I see what we've been doing. Um, beginning with God's original creational intent, his original intent for earthly flourishing and culminating in God's redemptive purpose of restoring earthly life to what it was meant to be, a purpose accomplished in Christ. It's not about escape, it's about God redeeming his creation. Now next week, just to highlight this, this is not some kind of, um, you know, hey, easy social justice for everybody, peace for everyone, man, it's all going to be good, it's all going to get better in the future. There is, um, we do live in a world in which we are engaged in a spiritual battle. There are forces arrayed against us which we need to understand and overcome. So it's not about that, but it is about living as a witness to what God has intended for his creation in the present time, in the present world. God does not, um, does not abandon the idea that actually I want you to live well in this world, that I want you to have life and blessing, all the things that are there in the covenant with Israel. But he wants us to be able to do that without sin. He wants us to do it in a way that redeems and challenges and rejects doing those things in a way that is infected and distorted by our sinful imagination. We want to see how what God has accomplished in Christ is about setting in one sense creation on its proper track at the same time as there are people pushing things off that track and the two live together in a struggle that gets but the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or political or anything else like that. They're not fleshly, but mighty through God to pulling it down the strongholds. Second um, Corinthians chapter 10. 
every imagination, every thought, every um, form of thinking that goes against God and his Christ needs to be challenged and taken into, taken into captivity. That's the area of our warfare. Or, in Ephesians chapter 6, as you know, we don't struggle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and other dark forces. So we do them in a struggle. So I just want to make sure that you're not sort of imagining, oh, this is about going off into a kind of a, um, you know, an earthly paradise that we can construct ourselves. And yet, the text that we've been having going in the background every week in the newsletter, that we are, have been created in Christ Jesus for good works that he has prepared for us to do. In the midst of all that other stuff, just like Jesus did. In the midst of a war in opposition to many things that God wants, actively rebelling or indifferent or whatever, God has called us to actually live according to his purposes in the midst of that, in all of our lives. Not just the spiritual life, but every sphere of life, whether it's your family, whether you think about economics, whether you think about your political engagement or thoughts, whether you're thinking um, about your work life and what does it actually mean to live as a Christian in my work life. All of these things are areas where we need to think about what are the good works that God has called us to in the midst of all those spheres of life. God has created the world, the world, every sphere of life has in some sense been infected with sin and idolatry. Redemption is about redeeming not a little part of the life, your spiritual life or something, but about all of your life together. Okay, so next week we're going to look at the second part of that, that is to grapple with the ethical implications of that biblical eschatology. Exploring how a holistic vision of the future can motivate and ground compassionate in old and redemptive living in God's world. All of this stuff is not us taking over from God, it's about living in God's kingdom. It's about living in the context of what he is providing for us. So the, uh, the consummation that we've been talking about is a complete restoration of all of creation plus more. It's not just the going back to the beginning. It's like going back to the garden and starting again. It brings all of history, including its um, failures and achievements and things like that, and sifts them, and in some way, as uh, Revelation puts it, the riches of, of the world and the kings of the earth will come into this new Jerusalem. We don't understand how that's going to happen, but it's a promise to say all of this wasn't just a big waste of time which was jettisoned and put aside. Somehow, God is going to bring even what is done in history uh, into his final um, city. So a couple of things just to conclude in that case. We can't just talk about the salvation which is to come unless we can also talk about judgment. So at the end, there we go. Just a little quick for me on, uh, Angie Wright, that the resurrection gives you a sense of what God wants to do 
with the whole world. The resurrection is the beginning of God's new creation. And the final goal of the work of the Triune God in salvation history is the establishment of the eschatological community. That is, a redeemed people dwelling in a new earth, enjoying reconciliation with their God, fellowship with each other, harmony with all creation. So consequently, the goal of the community lies at the heart of God's action in history, and God's ultimate intention for creation is the establishment of community. Okay? The final vision is not a group of individuals walking around having their own thing going with God. It is a city. It's not even a garden. It's a garden city. It's a group, enormous group of people. A group is just uh, completely underwhelming there, isn't it? It's a mass of people living in God's new city, a new creation. As a community, living life together as they should. Okay, so two things from um, Revelation. First thing is you read Revelation 21, you see the idea that the old water passes away. Okay, now it's done in apocalyptic language and often uses metaphors of um, stars and things like that as well. Uh, the sea, you know, there'll be no more sea because it's a symbol of chaos, etc. But the old order of things will pass away. The only thing that remains is the life that God intends for us. Okay? For us now, living in the present means we have a choice of doing things God's way or not, or a compromise of some form or another. Know that in the end, Anything that you invested your life in that basically went against what God required of us will be gone. Set aside. You're not investing for the long term, as it were. A new Jerusalem, a new city coming down out of heaven. Again, the direction has always been God coming to live amongst us. Okay? We don't think about, primarily, that our life is about being here with God for a while, we die in a forgiven state, in order that we can go and be with God in heaven, a place forever. The end of the story is that God brings down out of heaven to the earth, a joining of heaven and earth, um, here with us. God comes to dwell with us. And then sin and its effects are removed, and God will make everything new. But there are events that precede the end. There's a lot of cleanup that has to happen. First thing is that, hey, come Lord Jesus, Jesus returns, or in other words, appears. Um, in uh, the end of Philippians, it talks about the idea that we wait from heaven for Jesus to be revealed, by which he will transform us and our bodies to be like his body, so not to leave our body behind and become spirits, but instead, to have a body like his body and that same power that he uses to do that, he will transform everything else in this world. So the resurrection of the body is the next thing for us. And then there is a judgment because things cannot be left as they are. There will be a reckoning. There will be, for all of us, a coming before God to give an account of our lives. Now, we often just think about terms of uh, the final judgment as, well, I'm okay, so I'm a Christian, I'm forgiven the end. We are all called to account for our lives. Yes, you are forgiven. Yes, you are secure in your uh, relationship with God in Christ. 
but there will be a final reckoning as well, a final judgment, and then a renewal of creation. The final end, I'm not going to talk about this now, but the final end and who was included and who was not is again a point of Christian theology that people uh, can debate. When we're talking about the scale of things, convictions of different beliefs, of different seriousness, and various opinions. We talk about sometimes heaven and hell, which again is unhelpful in this, this context. The primary category in terms of judgment is judgment, not hell. What judgment looks like for people and the consequences of that are where we begin. Different Christians disagree about what does that look like in terms of the outcome, what is often called hell. However, we think about that in our reading of scripture, the fundamental thing is, in the end God wins. And there is not going to be, I'll wager, an ongoing forever sphere of creation in which rebellion against God continues. I'll just throw that out there. I can back it up, but I'm not going to do a sermon on it right now. But the main thing is, God will judge the world. And from all that I can see in Scripture, not everyone ends up on the right side. There are a few Christians that disagree with that, but I think that's the, the fundamental reality, is that God wants people to be part of this new community, to be, live in, in and around the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. But I think it's interesting that the Bible does not tell us precisely what will happen at the end, because judgment, as you read the Gospels and as you read the book of Revelation, is going to be a time of surprises for all of us. Jesus does warn those people who presume about how they will be there at the end, and Lord, Lord, didn't I you know, do this or that in your name? Uh, watch out whether you are there at the end. Likewise, whoa, what are these people doing here? They were terrible in their life. Why is it they included? All of this comes down to the judgment of our Lord Jesus Christ. Anyone who is included at the end is on the basis of his work, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. But he is the judge. In which case, again, the seriousness of what it means to actually preach the gospel and to tell people about the risen Lord. And as Paul says in Acts 17, he has set a day in the future whereby he will judge the world by this one man and he has shown it to be the case by the resurrection of the dead. So the end is not about a kind of a breezy, hey, sin doesn't matter. No, it matters. It costs um, the, the life of the Son of God. It is important. But sin, where sin abounded, grace far more abounds. So, where does that leave us? It leaves us with this. We have this hope grounded in what God intends to do for his creation. We are to live, as we'll see next week, in anticipation of what God intends for the world ultimately and all of creation and redemption. He wants us to live in that now through the presence of his spirit. This new covenant, all of these things that were promised in Jeremiah, 
have come to fruition through our Lord Jesus Christ and the giving of the Spirit now. We have a life and mission, a vocation set before us which is clear. What we are doing is in continuity with what has gone before, but not just in a cycle. We've been put forward. We're in a new position. We're in a position that Israel was not in. But we're not at the end. We still struggle uh, with sin, but that is not an excuse. Don't just go living our lives going, oh, well, I'm still a sinner, and at least I can be forgiven, and I'm just going to keep doing that cycle over and over again. Ephesians 2.10. We have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. Okay, we saved by grace, that's verse 8. For what purpose? To live in accordance with God, what God required. <coughs> However, we live, we don't live up to perfection, we don't live up to perhaps a, a great standard much of the time. We have a hope in the future that it's God's work alone. But in the meantime, God has called us in this human and divine partnership to live in accordance with God's purpose. You might say his law or Torah in our hearts to live and do what God requires and he has given us his spirit, his very presence to live in us in order to live that out. So there are no excuses. There are no other more interesting paths to life. This is what we're here for. And in doing so, it should bleed, you might say, or spread its way into all different areas of our life. I don't know if you've, you know, over the years I've met Christians in the workplace and i found that generally Christians are either the worst or the best people to work with. Um, sometimes they are, um, they have not yet learned what actually uh, a life embracing the goodness and teaching of Jesus actually is. But you like telling people about going to hell and things like that, being disruptive and whatever, and a terrible witness. And then there are other people who think, there's something different about that person. You've all met people like that, that's how I became a Christian. You meet somebody and you go, there's something different there. You've got to know what it is. It's the presence of Christ in that person's life. And I don't know how and why that happened to them and what's some of that. So that's what we're called to do. This sure hope is in front of us. It's not an escape. It's about living redemptively in the present time. And that's what we'll be talking about next week. Amen. Bruce, did you have a final prayer or anything?